With that, let's turn our attention to the preaching of God's word. Please open to the book of Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, there are some Bibles on the back table. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one of those and that's our gift to you. We're going to be beginning a mini-series this summer on Paul's first missionary journey in the book of Acts. And today, we're going to see how this journey begins. And here's what I'm hoping to do as we connect Ephesians and Acts together. So in Ephesians, we spent almost a year soaking in the good news of the grace of God. I hope with all of my heart that you have grown to love and appreciate uh, the gospel of Jesus far more at the end of Ephesians than you did at the beginning of Ephesians. But that gospel filling our hearts and that grace of God welling up in us needs to be shared. It's not intended just to stay and transform our life. It's meant to ripple out and transform the lives of others. And so we're going to see exactly that as we start this missionary journey with the Apostle Paul, beginning in verse 1. And as we read, let's remember, this isn't some dry history. This is God's Word. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a long, lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. When they had gone throughout the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. And then the proconsul believed, for he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is God's word. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us where we need to be encouraged, challenge us where we need to be challenged, and strengthen us where we need to be strengthened through the preaching of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, often our dear friend John is one of the last people to leave the church building. Our church has a consistent problem, a problem that not every church has, and the problem is this. People after church events will not leave the building. And you're laughing because that you are some of those people. Maybe you're here like, I always leave right away. No, stay, it's good. But not for too long. Because at some point we do have to turn the building, you know, we've got to lock the building up. And so we've tried everything. We've tried shutting the AC down in the summer. People just stay. They just sweat and talk. You know, you're just like, but what's wrong with you people? I remember even for evening services, we'll start to turn lights off. Like first those lights and then these lights and then the, and people are just unfazed. They're just like pulling out their phone. They're like, yeah, uh-huh, so tell me about your week. You know. 
And so consistently, John, because he's on the sound team so faithfully, often will yell something that I just love. I've probably heard this a hundred times. So he will yell out into the, you know, into the group of people that don't want to leave. He'll yell, you don't have to leave, but you can't stay here. <laughs> Meaning like, look, you got to get out of here. I don't care where you go, but you got to go somewhere that's not here, right? And in some ways, I love that because it's a summary of the Christian life. And here's what I mean. When we become Christians, that not everything in our life immediately changes. It's not as though we totally change our wardrobe and change our job and change our city and all of a sudden just immediately upon becoming a Christian go down to darkest Peru into the mountains and that's our life now. And maybe your life eventually. But, but it, it doesn't mean that the moment you become a Christian, everything in your life changes uh, in every area. But there is a very consistent pressure and change that begins to well up in your heart that you can't stay where you are anymore. You can't stay where you are in every season, every area of life. Things begin to be rearranged and changed more and more and more. In fact, the, the whole church in Antioch exists because the Christians that believed in Jerusalem did not stay where they were. They heard the gospel in Jerusalem and uh, Acts 11 tells us that because of the persecution that arose around the time of Stephen the martyr, a lot of these people left the city and came to places like Antioch. The only problem was they were not the same people they had been when they arrived in Jerusalem before they heard the gospel. And the text says that uh, there were some of them, men of, Simon, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Meaning this, these people who had had their lives rearranged in Jerusalem find themselves in Antioch, and then they start preaching the gospel because they're different, and what happens? Those people who believe turn to the Lord, meaning there is a turn when you come to the Lord. It's not just, okay, I'm going in the same way. Uh, Martin Luther said it famously, the Christian life is one of constant repentance, meaning this, that it's a constant change from what you used to be to the things of the Lord. Things in Ephesians, we talked about things you put off and things you put on. There is a constant change that begins. The gospel, when you encounter it truly and the Lord opens your eyes and saves you, does not leave you where you are. So, Christian, today, here's what I want you to hear as the, sort of the banner over our whole mini-series in Acts, the Christian life is a sent life for every Christian. Now, the, the where they're sent, how they're sent, who they're sent to, that may be different, but no Christian is an unsent Christian. Every Christian is a sent Christian. We're, we, this is because of Jesus' words in Acts chapter 1. You will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. To be a Christian means to be a witness to who the Lord is and what he has done. And often you bear the very evidence of that with your own life. And so let me just encourage you, if you are a Christian, there is no way to be a Christian and stay where you are. You can't do it. You can't simply add the good things about being a Christian. Like, oh, I want more peace. I want more joy. I want more of this. And I also just want to keep everything in life the exact same way it was before. I just am comfortable. I like this. I'd like to be more comfortable through the gospel. No, 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 no. That's not, that's not, that's not it. Acts has a wonderful plan for your life and it is a sent life. Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life and it involves you being sent somewhere to some people 
for the purposes of the gospel. So that's the overall theme of the series, that you can't stay where you are. You must be sent out. But one of the challenges that happens when you realize, okay, I know I'm supposed to be sent. I'm probably supposed to share the gospel with somebody. I'm supposed to live differently. But I don't, I don't feel equipped to do this. Listen, even though I've been a pastor for over a decade, there are, mo- there are many moments where I still feel inadequate to communicate the gospel winsomely and, and, and inv- kind of respond to every single situation that occurs in life. I don't know what to do. And so often when I hear, okay, the Christian life is a sent life. You're being sent out. You can't stay here. There's a part of me that goes, that's right. Amen. Let's do it. And there's another part of me that goes, no, 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 no. Is there like a, like a junior version of Christianity that I can do? Like, can I join the junior varsity Christianity? I know that the, the senior varsity guys are out there with tracks and Bibles, like boom, boom, kicking down doors and beating up demons. I want to be in the junior guys, right? Like the, like, like you know, the, the, the little, the guys with the little, you know, the little responsibilities and they have little changes in their life. And Jesus is like, no, the Christian life is a sent life. But the good news is that Jesus sends us with all that we need. He sends us with all that we need. During the pandemic, I felt the bug at a certain point to go camping with my boys. I think my boys at the time were like, you know, five and seven or something like that. And I got into my head, we need to get out in nature. I've not done a good job as a dad at getting my kids out in nature. We're going to get out and go camping. Now, uh, I want somebody to ask me, Ricky, have you ever taken the family camping before then? No, I, have, I had never taken the family camping before then. And further, somebody asked me, have you been camping, Ricky? The answer is, I, I think maybe. I don't remember it very well. I remember being out. I'm not sure, you know. And so you, that's not a great starting place when you're pitching your wife, let me take small children with me into the woods camping. And so Jen began to point out a few flaws with this plan. One, my lack of knowledge. Two, my lack of preparation. Three, uh, she pointed out very kindly and gently, we don't own any camping equipment. That, that could also, and I was like, well, we've have, we have a tent. I did lose the rain flap when we were playing with it. So if it rains, we'll be wet. But we have the tent. And I'm sure we could throw some snacks and blankets. And it'll be fine, right? And she's just like, no, you do not have what you need to go camping. And maybe that's where you're at as a Christian today. Maybe you feel like, okay, I'm being sent out reluctantly. The Lord is pushing me into life. I'm supposed to go tell people about Jesus. I'm supposed to live a sent life in the world. But I don't have any of the things I need. I don't have a degree in apologetics. I don't have a bunch of experience doing this. I don't have any of the things I need. You can't send me out there. Well, that's why the book of Acts is such good news. It shows us today that we're sent with what we need. First thing we are sent with is we are sent with God's people. Now, the whole church is involved in praying and thinking and wrestling with Paul and Barnabas being sent out. Because if you notice, the Holy Spirit does not say set apart Paul and Barnabas to go to Cyprus on a missionary church planting journey. No, it just says set apart for me, Paul and Barnabas, for the work I've called them to. And so there was a lot of wrestling with, okay, what is that work? What are you good at? And very likely it was probably this church, think about this, that helped define the role and mission of the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. Before this, they had not been church planting missionaries. They didn't just arrive into the world as church planting missionaries. It was this moment that they prayed and thought and said, you know what, 
Paul is really good at speaking the gospel clearly and teaching the Bible. And Barnabas is so encouraging. He just breathes life into people. And they've been really good taking this kind of motley crew of untested Christians and making them into a thriving local church. I wonder if they could do that in other places. Right? Let me just say, it has been of incalculable value in my own life having other Christians involved in my life to help me discern where and how and when I'm being sent as a Christian. Many Christians, I think, get stuck because they hear, you're supposed to be sent, and then they're just like, oh, I don't know what to do, I don't know where to go. Well, this is where the God, God gives the people of God to you as a gift. People of God who say, you may, I think you're good at this. Here's a thought about that. Here's how you, I would approach my work if I were you. I wonder, have you thought about this? That, that is part of being sent with God's people. They're not just sent by God's people. They're also then sent with God's people, meaning this. Notice that the Holy Spirit wisely says, does not say, set apart for me Paul, and that's it. No, he, he sets apart two men that could work together. And in fact, they recruit a third guy who gets a little waffly uh, later in Acts, but then ends up having a huge comeback and writing the Gospel of Mark. So he ends up being a good dude. And these three, and, and possibly others, were sent out by the church in Antioch to this island of Cyprus. They're sent together. So not only do they, does the church help them discern how the Lord has sent them, the church also goes with them. So let me just encourage you. If you're a Christian and it seems overwhelming to be sent, maybe it's because you don't see that you're sent with others. You're not doing this on your own. I, I was talking to somebody re, that, that, that joined the neighborhood outreach team, and they just were sharing how it felt so overwhelming when we would hear teaching on, hey, let's go get, you know, take the gospel to people in El Paso. And they're just like, I don't know where or how or what, you know, what neighborhood to start in. And so they just joined the neighborhood outreach team and thought, oh, okay, these people are already doing this. I'm just going to link arms with them. Like, that's what the church does. We work together. We're sent together. Second thing we're sent with, we're sent with the word of God. Now we know when it says they proclaim the word of God, we know from the context of Acts that this is shorthand for the gospel message. The word of God is not just kind of some random teaching in the Old Testament. That, that word of God is the word of the gospel, the good news. The good news that Jesus came as God's son to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins that we might be restored to God. Through Jesus Christ, right? That is the good news. And so Paul and Barnabas, whose lives, by the way, who have, have been changed by the message of the gospel of Jesus, then go share that message of the gospel of Jesus with others. I mean, think about what these conversations would have been like. Barnabas, we learn, was actually from Cyprus. And so, side note, probably one of the reasons they started in Cyprus is Barnabas was from there, and maybe he knew folks. He was familiar with it. So, hey, it seems wise. Let's start there. And so people would go up to Barnabas. I don't know if Cyprus is like El Paso. You know, it's just like you see somebody like from 10 years ago, you're like, hey, and you're trying to remember their name. Ah, Eddie, you know. And you're like, bro, what have you been doing? And they start to describe, oh, I was over here. You know, I lived in Dallas, or I lived in Phoenix, and I came back, which is everyone who lives in El Paso has at one point lived in Dallas or Phoenix or L.A. and come back. That's the whole population of El Paso. And so you're like, hey, what was the last 10 years for you? And 
And they start to describe it. Well, in Barnabas's case, he was like, yeah, well, I went to Jerusalem. I was living there. My life got turned upside down. I heard this message about Jesus of Nazareth, who I believe now is the Messiah of Israel, and he's changed my life. They're like, whoa, okay. Like that, from the very beginning, he's preaching the gospel or talking to Paul. Hey, Paul, well, what's your background? What did you used to do before, I guess, traveling around telling people about Jesus? Like, oh, I did a lot of traveling before this. Oh, yeah, what kind? Uh, mostly persecution. <laughs> what were you persecuting? Uh, Jesus of Nazareth and his church. Like, oh, bro, isn't that, wait, I'm confused. Is that the thing you're telling us now, though? Like, yep, yeah, that was me, yeah. I heard about a really angry guy that was going around just persecuting people. And that, that was me, yeah, that's right. And now I'm here, but now you're here to tell me about Jesus and why he's great? Yep, that's exactly right. Right, do you imagine Paul and Barnabas, their story and the gospel, their life and the gospel are inextricably linked and they then use that as a platform to proclaim the gospel and the word of God. Notice this, the word of God is powerful, not because it's a collection of Paul's wisdom sayings or Barnabas's encouragement. The word of God is powerful because it is the word of God. It has changed them. It is being heralded. It will change others. And so we're not sent with a collection of pithy sayings. We're not sent with a collection of wise sort of life principles. We're sent with the word of God, the living, powerful, effective word of God. I love this quote from Martin Luther where he is reflecting on the Reformation and he says this, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. Right? The, the, the power is not even fundamentally in our wisdom. It's not even a little in our wisdom, our life principles, our advice. It is the word of God that has changed us and can change others. That's what we're sent with. It carries with it its own power. Third, we're sent with the spirit of God. Now, Paul and Barnabas quickly run into trouble at the end of their tour of the island of Cyprus. It says that they had gone through the whole island and they came upon a certain magician. Now, listen, this is quite a situation. A Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. You're like, whoa. Okay, can you play that again? So he was Jewish in some sense, whether ethnically or otherwise, but he was also a false prophet prophet. He was also known in verse 8 as a magician who dabbled in mystical arts and the occult. And so Paul's summary of him is helpful when he says, will you not stop making uh, crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Meaning that there were, there were clear, probably threads of Judaism in what he taught and talked to people about, but he would twist them. So it's like, it's good. God, you know, God has a people, Right? And God is real and God is powerful. But then he would twist these things into the occult or into the mystical. Or, or rather than showing people how to be reconciled to this God through sacrifice, he, maybe he was preaching some other way, some other way of gaining wisdom. And, and this is a complicated situation that Paul finds himself. So he's summoned 
before this proconsul. Now, it's important because this proconsul could stop the proclamation of the gospel on the island of Cyprus. I mean, if, he, if this audience does not go well, Paul could, in a sense, lose the ability to freely travel and proclaim. But he notices this, this guy, Elymas, or Bar-Jesus, has wormed his way into the proconsul's good graces. I imagine this guy, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, as, the, as that guy, Wormtongue. Who there's a good king, but this, this bad worm-tongued guy kind of infects his court and begins to speak lies and put him under a spell. And so you realize, okay, this is a really sensitive situation. You've got the proconsul. If this doesn't go well, he can shut down the preaching of the gospel. You've got this shady Jewish magician guy who has wormed his way into the court. And, and I don't know about you, but I don't really know what the play is there. I don't know what the plan is. How do you somehow can preach the gospel, but, but you know, you're thinking, I don't want to go too hard because then he get, might get mad at me. What about this other guy that's super shady? Will he try to do something to me? What do I do? The solution is in verse 9. Look at the solution. The solution is simple. Verse 9, but Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, said the following. Notice that the same Holy Spirit that sent Paul and Barnabas to this island, sent them out from Antioch for the work of the gospel, that same Spirit that sends them is still with them. God does not say, hey, get out there, good luck, and then peace out. No, the, God sends them, the Spirit sends them, but the Spirit remains with them. And so similarly, in challenges, when we are sent and we encounter situations where I don't know exactly what to do, I don't know how to navigate this, part of what Jesus says about the Spirit is that the Spirit's function will be to give us the words we need to speak to testify to the gospel in those moments. We are sent with more than just our good ideas. We're sent with the Spirit of God himself. Do you have that kind of confidence? I don't know about you, but I don't like being in situations where like, man, I don't know the answer. I like knowing the answer. I think apologetics is helpful. But if we lack the confidence to walk into situations where we may not perfectly know the answer, where we may not perfectly know how to nuance the situation uh, for the good of the gospel, it's okay. Jesus sends us, if we have the gospel and the spirit of God and are faithful, it is enough. Look, Christian, I want you to have confidence that the spirit of God goes with you. And the spirit of God that fills Paul in this moment is no different than the spirit of God that fills you as a Christian. It's not as though God gave Paul a special Holy Spirit that none of us can have. He's got like the varsity spirit. We have the JV spirit, you know. He can do miracles. We can't do much at all. No, it's the same Holy Spirit that indwells you today, right now. You're sent with all you need. Fourth, sent with the hand of God. Now, the situation gets resolved not because Paul does a razzle-dazzle rhetorically, even though he is great at preaching the gospel. Not because Barnabas encourages Sergius Paulus enough that he turns to the gospel. No, the situation turns on its head simply because of the hand of God. Paul and Barnabas are sent with the hand of God. Now look at how this plays out. Saul looked 
It says, Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, now, side note, this is not the opening I would use if I was leaning on human wisdom, right? If you got a real politically sensitive situation going on, the opening line would not normally be, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy. You're like, whoa, okay, maybe we should, you know, back up and kind of take this, take two here. Barnabas is trying to pull Saul aside. No, no, no. He's filled with the spirit and has the wisdom, has the spirit leading to go, I just got to cut through this. I got to go straight at this. And look what he says. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see for a time. Which is something evidently the spirit had revealed to Paul. So he, he speaks in faith and he speaks confident that the hand of the Lord will do what he cannot do. Now remember, Elymas is, is dabbling in the occult. He's a mystic, whether he's kind of a... He's just playing at these things or maybe he really is involved in demonic and occult activity. And Paul is just a lawyer, right? This Paul and Barnabas, they're not going to fight off this guy if he uses some dark magic and attacks them. Their power is insufficient up against what they are facing. And yet, Paul and Barnabas go in confident because they know they have more than just their power at hand. They know that the hand of the Lord is with them and goes before them and can do what they cannot do. Right? That, that is why they're confident here. And look, look at the effect of the hand of the Lord. The Lord is, is just, it's, he, it's so helpful to see the way the Lord confounds Elymas. This man who claimed to see the deep mysteries and, and I don't know, he was like this, but every magician I've ever talked to or seen in the occult has a little razzle-dazzle there. There's like a little candle and like some hand motions or whatever. Elemis has all that stuff and he can see into the mysteries. Boom, he's blind. And this guy who is worming his way through Sergius Paulus's court and, and holding sway and holding power and people are probably coming to him and saying, oh, oh, you know, Elemis, can I talk to you about this? Oh, later, later, later. You know, like... He's the one that's being sought after. All of a sudden, it's, it's flipped, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. To the point where he's just, can someone help me? I can't see. Oh, I thought you were supposed to be able to see the mysteries of the universe. I can't see anything right now, right? This is, this is what the Lord's done. He's flipped the situation completely on its head. Sim similarly, our hope as we face opposition, whether it's overt opposition coming straight at us or subtle opposition or social pressure, our hope is not that we will in ourselves come up with enough power to stop what opposes us. Enough power to overcome the, the spiritual forces arrayed against us. No, our hope is that the hand of God goes with us. That when we face circumstances or opponents beyond our ability to match, they are never beyond the ability of God and his hand to match. It's like watching Arnold Schwarzenegger arm wrestle a toddler. There is, it's not even a, a fair fight. The hand of the Lord goes with the Christian. You know, recently we, we went swimming for the first time, and Anson, uh, because he's only been alive for three and a half years, he, he forgot 
that he could swim a little bit. And he swims with a puddle jumper, you know, those little life vest things. But he forgot that he could be out there. So he, I'm getting in the water with him, and he's, you know, he's like close at hand. He's like constantly wanting me to be with him, you know. And, and I'm like, that's okay, buddy. And so at the one point, I just had to physically kind of have a hand on him at all times. But then as he grew more confident and grew more confident, he started to kind of wander off, and then he kind of come back. Wander off, swim off, and then come back. And, it, and it's funny watching this three-year-old because I'll be like a foot away from him. And initially, as he was getting in, he would look back panicked sometimes. Like he'd be floating and he'd realize, I'm not holding him. Like he didn't feel that pressure on the vest. And so he'll look back panicked, like, I'm going to die. And I'm like, man, I'm, the look I'm giving him is, I'm right here, buddy. He's like, okay, okay, go. All right. And then he'd go two feet away. Ah! And then he'd come back, right? And realize, oh, he's still with me. He's still with me. And I think for so many of us as Christians, that is exactly what we experience. The hand of the Lord is with us. It's right next to us. We have moments where we powerfully feel it. And then we also have moments, maybe right after that, where we're panicked, looking around like, ah, what happened? You left me in the pool by myself. No. No, he never leaves us by ourselves. The hand of the Lord is with you. Look, so Christian, here's the effect of this. Rather than sort of being gathered up by Jesus, who's like, all right, you're going to go on a camping trip, and you don't have a tent, you don't have anything you need, but you got to just get out there in the wilderness. And sometimes that's what we feel the task of evangelism is. What we see is in Acts actually the opposite. Jesus gives us everything we need to be sent. He gives us his people that we go with. He gives us his word, which carries its own power. He gives us his spirit to help us answer situations that we don't know what to do. He gives us his hand to match and overcome any opposition. We are sent with all we need. Now, if I can, I want to make a closing application here to a very specific situation we face this month as Christians, which is LGBTQ Pride Month. Now, we've put some resources on the blog for this. Uh, I've given you five resources ranging from not so dense to pretty dense to be equipped as a Christian to think about these things. And then four specific ways to pray for this month. But I want to apply this text to this context that we live in. Now, we believe as a church that every person, and hear me when I say this, every person is made in the image of God. And every person has dignity, value, and worth. And we as Christians must declare that and believe that for those identifying as LGBTQ. They are made in the image of God full of dignity, value, and worth. And we also confess that God's image is expressed as he has made it in male and female And marriage is the lifelong union of one man and one woman in a union that represents Christ and the church. And because we believe those things, we believe that to pursue or promote or condone distortions to gender or relationship is unloving both now and in eternity. And so, as we look at our current culture during Pride Month, I, I must admit that there are moments where I find myself discouraged, feeling so much like the minority culturally in, in the sense of not affirming what I don't believe the Lord allows me in his word to affirm. Uh, discouraged that my kids will face things that I did not have to face. Discouraged that, that, that perhaps people will not like me because of what I believe um, or have said. Uh, 
Maybe you're there as well. So how then do we apply a message like this in a context like this? Well, first, I'm going to offer three thoughts here. First is this. We must remember that we are all sent to this culture and this time through God's design and providence. I've heard some Christians, and if I could just push on this for a second, I've heard some Christians say things like, man, I wish I didn't live in this time. You know, with these different things and culture going on, I wish... It's almost like, man, I wish God had just made me be born in the 60s or something like that. Or the 1860s or whatever. I don't know. Some of you revolutionary war people, the 1760s. I don't know. Whatever, whatever your preferred age is. I wish I got to live in that age. I wish I didn't have to deal with some of these things. I wish my kids didn't have to face some of these things. And yet, I think that does a disservice to what the Lord has done. The Lord, Christian, has seen fit to send you to this time and this place for a reason. And answer the question, does our culture not need the Lord? Does our culture not need what we ourselves have experienced in finding hope and finding peace and finding rest and finding forgiveness in the gospel of Jesus Christ? We are sent just the way Paul and Barnabas were, just the way the, the Christians who planted the church in Antioch were, they were sent to that people that more might know the life-giving message of Jesus Christ. We live as sent Christians, we remember it. Second, we must remember that the greatest need of our age is the same great need of every age, and it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the crying predominant need of our age. Look, we can talk about political uh, things. We can talk about cultural things. We can talk about boycotts. But the predominant crying need of our age is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And look, I believe that the LGBTQ movement is in many ways powerful because it affirms a deep straight truth in a sense, and I don't mean that as a play on words, it, it affirms a, a deep, tr deep truth that is meant to be in a clear line in scripture and makes it just a little bent. For example, do we believe that every person should be loved? Yes. Do we believe every church, a person should be valued? Yes. Do we believe every person should, should, for example, be able to decide things about their life for themselves? Yes. But then it, it, it bends it just a little bit at first and says, well, well, that means that I get to decide how to live my life with no restrictions from anyone, including God. I decide what's right for me, and my truth becomes the truth I live by. And you begin to get a little more, a little more, a little more. And here's the reality. The LGBTQ movement offers, it offers much. It offers a way to be made whole, or it, it claims to offer a way to be made whole. It claims to offer a community of acceptance. It claims to offer a future hope of a better world. But here's what I want to say. The gospel of Jesus Christ goes far deeper into our hearts and is far better. The gospel of Jesus Christ gives dignity not created by our own choices, but by being created with specificity and design and glory from a creator that loves us. Right? That, that sinks down to the deepest part of your soul. The gospel says that the only way for us to be made whole, fully, and truly is to be restored to the one who made us. 
to be restored to the design of God for us. The gospel itself is the only thing that can offer us complete wholeness, complete shalom. And it's the only thing that can offer us that which we most long for, which is a relationship with God. And it offers us a far better vision of the future of the kingdom of God now and in eternity. So let us remember, the need of our age is the, is the same need that, that there was in the book of Acts on the island of Cyprus. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Third, our confidence then must not be in developing some perfect, winsome strategy or achieving talking head or cultural victories. Our confidence must be in the Lord. I don't know about you, but I feel insufficient for navigating these things many times. It, it, how, do you, how do you have conversations with people where you simultaneously say, man, I deeply love you more than you know. I deeply care about you more than you know. I see the image of God shining through you in a way that you don't even see. And yet, I cannot believe some of the things or affirm some of the things you're asking me to affirm. Because in the gospel, I think there is something far better for you, right? How do you, how do you make that perfectly nuanced and clear so that it offends no one, it ruffles no feathers? I don't think you can. So our confidence, Christians, must not be in a perfect strategy, but in the Lord. Here's the good news, church. We are sent with all that we need. We are sent with God's people. There's so many times as I've navigated issues in this arena that I've gone to other Christians and gotten their counsel and help and prayer and support. So glad I'm not sent alone. There's so many times where I've begun to think, okay, if I could just perfectly philosophically lay this out, no. Many ways, sometimes that's helpful, but the thing that's gonna change hearts is the word of God accompanied by the power of God. There's so many times I think, man, I don't know what to say or do. I remember this guy, this is not related to this specific topic, but I was at a, a, a flea market and, this, and I was somehow talking to the guy selling stuff and he, I mentioned that I was a, a pastor and, and he said something like, I'm trying to remember, but he said something like, I don't believe any of that stuff. It's all a bunch of lies, Jesus and all the rest. You're like, whoa, good morning. Good Saturday morning to you, sir. And so I remember thinking, I don't know what to say to that. I don't know what's going on in this guy's life. And so I, but I think the Holy Spirit helped me. I think in that moment I said something like, well, I'll tell you what, you may not believe Jesus is real, but I'm here to tell you that he has changed my life for the better. And I think if you open the word and honestly look at him, I think he's different than you think. He had a short interaction after that. But listen, there's moments where it's like, I don't know what to, I, I did not go prepared for. What if somebody at the punk rock flea market says the following to me? And yet the spirit of God went with me. And then the hand of the Lord goes before us. So look, this is, this is my encouragement, church. Do not lose heart over being in the cultural minority in many ways. Do not lose heart over feeling overwhelmed culturally. Do not lose heart at feeling like you wish you could live in another time. Take heart. The Lord has sent you with all you need. And by the way, the very thing those around you need is the very thing that you needed, which is to hear that you're a sinner who can be saved by grace, transformed and given a future and a hope, right? That same core message is true for everyone, 
regardless of their life. That's what we're here to proclaim. So with that, let's turn to communion. I want to encourage you to take up the communion elements right now. And if you're not a Christian, uh, here's what I want you to hear today. This act symbolizes the very heart of our faith. If you're not a Christian, I'd I'd say refrain from partaking in the elements. But I hope that the gospel will clearly come to you and and be proclaimed clearly before you in this simple act. Because here, here is what is not the gospel. The gospel is not become heterosexual like us. The gospel is not become a good voter like us. The gospel is not become a good churchgoer like us. The gospel is this, become a sinner saved by grace like us. That is the gospel. And so no matter who you are or where you are today, this holds out good news for you. That The thing that you most want in your heart of deepest hearts is a relationship with the God who made you. And through the cross, Jesus, whose life, death, and resurrection offers a way back, offers a way for you to have it again. So for, for those of us that are Christians, I want to encourage you, take the bread in your hand today. And as we take the bread in our hand, let's remember that the Lord, as we've been talking about, has given us all we need in life. But we have confidence that he will continue to give us all we need in life because he gave us all we need for salvation. What did the Lord hold back from giving to us on the cross? Nothing. He gave his very self to us. He broke his body and had his blood shed for us. So part of, I think, what the Lord wants to do as we take communion is reassure you that the same one who has given you all you need in salvation will give you all you need in life. So please take the bread and pray with me. Lord, as we hold this in our hands, we remember your body broken for us. May we see your great love for us, the fact that you know our needs even better than we do in sending Jesus. We rejoice and remember what you have done. Please take the bread. Now please take the cup in your hand and pray with me. Lord, as we hold this cup in our hands, it reminds us and points to the blood of Jesus shed for us. The truth that you gave all that we need even to your very life, even to your blood itself, poured out for us until it was finished that sinners might be made whole and clean through the blood and sacrifice of Jesus. Lord, you've given us all we need. We remember and rejoice. Please take the cup. And now please stand with me. And as we stand, I I just, I felt that this was not planned, but I felt the Lord this morning press this on me. I just want to be faithful to perhaps the prompting of the Spirit. I speak to, I want to just speak to you for a minute, if I can, those who may be predominantly or exclusively same-sex attracted, 
as we've talked about Pride Month and LGBTQ issues, and maybe it brings up very much a wrestle in your life, a wrestle with, man, if I'm a Christian and this is what the Bible says, what does that mean for my relationships? What does that mean for whether I'll ever have a family? What does that mean for whether I'll be loved in my life? This is just a simple response I think the Lord put on my heart for you today. He has and will give you all you need. He who did not spare his son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Brother, sister, if you are there today, I pray that as we sing the story of the gospel, you would be reminded that he has always given you what you need and knows what you need perhaps even better than you many times in your life. And he is the same God today as the day that you met him and were saved. And he will be the same next week, next year, and through eternity. So let's, church, as we sing, remember what the Lord has done for us.